As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support for people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. a weekly one-hour podcast covering news from the agricultural and turfgrass industries. Ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls, and well, whatever you feel like you are tonight or whenever you listen to this, welcome. It's burn and return time. I'm your host, Ryan, and I'm here with Ray. Matt has no power tonight. No electricity, Ray. Oops. It's hard to run a podcast. Oops. It's hard to run a PC and do any of those normal things that you like to do, except for what Matt was doing last Thursday. And if you've tuned into our uh, our live Thirsty Thursday, you know that Matt started off the show. He was washing his balls. So you can still do that without power, Ray. And good enough because, you know, got to have clean balls. So how the hell are you tonight, Ray? I'm good. I'm good, Ryan. That's Super fantastic. Good. So. Tonight, we're going to dive in a little bit, uh, well, a little bit different here for uh, Burner Return. No articles tonight, because uh, we haven't spent a whole lot of time uh, with our patrons and with our, our members on YouTube. So we wanted to dive deeper a little bit into some of their questions and maybe some of the more advanced topics, because, uh, Ray, we don't take only the easy ones. We take the hard ones, too, uh, and especially yes. if you're Sheila. Yeah, she only takes hard ones. So, uh so we're going to start off here. <laughs> that was a good one. Come on. I set that up pretty good. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, let's start off with a couple of mail bags that we have. Do we have any mail? You've got mail. We do. All right. Yes, we do. Uh, let me go ahead and read this one here. I don't know if it's going to go up on the screen or not because we didn't rehearse any of this, folks. None of it. It's okay. Yeah. All right. So I've been unscripted. Yeah. Jeremy says, I'm hoping you guys can will help clear up this unanswered question for me. I wanted to provide a few more details regarding my fungicide regimen that was discussed on my call in a couple of weeks ago. I've attached pictures from a couple of years ago for reference. These spots started showing in early August of that year. I got larger and I lost turf in those spots. I never felt like I had a positive ID on the fungus if that was in fact what I was dealing with. It definitely seemed like a sore buoyant issue though. Plants would rot at the stolen, see attached pick. Perhaps on a related or unrelated note, I had a healthy mole cricket population that year that have had have since kept under control. Also, for what it's worth, here is my TLF uh, thread about the issue. Okay. So, a lot to go on here. And uh, Ray, I can't remember which guy this was that called it. Do you remember off the top of your head? I think I do. I, I remember. and. You know, Ryan, this uh, to me looks like classic co-infection. Okay. And when I say co-infection, Jeremy might well be dealing with, uh, you know, dual issues. uh, And what he thinks are diseases are actually a secondary issue. 
because really? in the case of Zoishi, primary issue becomes nematodes. Mm. That, that becomes primary. And if you have an, a latent nematode issue, then that makes whatever piscium, you know, large patch, et cetera, that you happen to be dealing with that much more severe and likely to happen. I mean, this is why, you know, this is kind of why it grinds my gears when people are sold zoysia under the promise that it is a hardy and disease-resistant grass. Nothing could be further from the truth, especially they all, if you are in the, have their words. In the tropics or, uh, or you know, south. Hmm. So... I at think this I, point. I, so, so yeah. at this point, what's the what's the game plan here, Ray? Okay, if I were going to be throwing shit at the wall to see if it sticks, I'd probably advise uh, Jeremy to consider treating his turf grass with something like Exteris. Okay, and Exteris specifically because uh, you know, Ryan, I saw the magic of Exteris many years ago when I started incorporating that into my uh, Zoysia treatment program. The turf areas that were constantly disease-prone and always looking bad made a spectacular turnaround. And these are the same turf areas that I had on that ridiculous fungicide program that included combinations of, uh, say, Lexicon plus uh, Aliette, for example. Mm. Or ProStar Eagle 20EW plus Aliette. Those of you scoring <laughs> at home, that's not uh, your, your regular uh, pricing game prize. Those are showcase showdown prizes, okay? Very expensive. So. If yeah, you want to go, yeah, that, go for there, Jeremy. It's going to cost you. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what my point is, is that I wasted a lot of time and money and uh, capital with clientele on those fungicide programs until I started incorporating Exteris into the program. Uh, and I think it's a yeah. it's a fine fungicide. It's a good thing to have around too. Like, there's never a time where you're like you're not going to use it. Uh, I think it's mm-hmm. a super useful tool, especially at the residential level. Like, if you're in cool season or warm season, I think it's an excellent product to have around. We don't even get paid to say this, right? We don't have a uh, website of Kylie curated bullshit to sell with that product in it. No, but here we are saying no, it. we don't. No, we don't. Go figure. It's. Uh... And the reason why it's valuable is that as of year 2000, I can't think of any product readily accessible to a a consumer or otherwise labeled for application to a residential lawn that will have the effect of reducing nematode populations. I can't think of a product like that. So another, another added benefit. Yeah, it's another added benefit because 
pre-2000 response to a nematode issue would include organophosphate drenches. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that with good reason has uh, been withdrawn from the market. And I, you know, I still remember my near-death experience from eight ounces per thousand square foot of Diazinon 4E. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's enough chemical in that sprayer to have uh, killed me many times over. So I just, uh, you know, I would just probably say next step looking at this uh, zoysia grass in that condition is I would give serious consideration to trying an application of Xteris. That, that's, there we go. That's where, that's where I go we, with it. <laughs> Godspeed, Jeremy. That's all we can say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, jumping over to our good friend, Jordan F. J. Farm. Uh, he says, yeah. this is right, right. This to me last night. And I wanted to answer him, uh, to give him more context mm-hmm. than I could type out. So he says, uh, evening, sir. I'm getting slightly concerned about my renovation timing this year. It's getting late in the year and temps are still crazy high. I was going to shoot for next weekend, but the week after is going to be nearly a hundred degrees every day. Our first frost date is typically around October 15th. Do I just have to send it and hope for the best? I have no mephanoxum before you ask. Okay, so uh, for those of you at home, J-Farm is in the Kansas City area, so it's been extremely hot. Uh, it's been a really tough summer there, I think, uh, growth-wise. So and this is a renovation he's had planned out for better part of a year, so uh, it's not mm-hmm. like he's had that tough of a year and it's just, you know, crapped out. He's got nothing. Uh, so I think that's why he's probably questioning it. It's like, hey, what I've got here is good enough, but I'd like to have something better. But is it worth all the time, energy, effort, cost, everything like that to put seed in the ground, prep for seed, put seed in the ground, and then have the weather just, you know, bash it and and make it all not do anything? Um, yeah. I, here's my thought is, um, and Ray, you can you can offer up some some thoughts here, too, because obviously you know, it's the other way with you, right? You're, you're talking about warm season and potentially timing it at a time when it might be too cold, right? And what do you do then? Too cold, so, not enough sun. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm going to go at it from my, my end with cool season and it being too hot. And then I want to hear from your ascent because this, you know, this could be something that people face in the future too. Yes, so, absolutely. Um, I would say this is that uh, you can only do what the weather gives you and you can only put so many risk mitigation strategies in place before you have to say okay that's too much or the likelihood of failure is so high that it's just not worth it now you know if he gets to next week i wouldn't just scrap the plan right now i mean i'd wait until you know we get to the week of and see what the weather's like and see what the forecast looks like and make a call then um all that being said 100 degree temperatures that makes me nervous 90 degree temperatures not so much 80 degree temperatures obviously were in the driver's seat. So when it comes to cool season grass, I'd look at that, that strata of hundreds of no go nineties. Okay. Eighties perfect. Right. So use that as your guidepost. Um, J farm. The other thing I'd look at too is nighttime lows. If we've got nighttime lows that are, you know, up above say 70 degrees, especially 75, 
that's concerning to me too. So I don't know, and I haven't looked at your forecast closely enough to know if this is, you know, a dry heat that you can just keep pumping water to it and it's just going to be high soil temperatures, or if this is really hot and wet together, that could be a problem, especially, you know, with new seedlings coming up and no methanoxin, right? Uh, that's really your only mm-hmm. line of defense. Phosphites are basically worthless on seed just because they're a little too tough on new seedlings. So all that to be said is uh, even if you do go late, even if let's just say you have to wait three weeks, four weeks from now uh, and still seed. First frost doesn't freak me out so much. I mean, there's ways that you can manipulate that and mess around with it to keep the frost off there and kind of keep things going a little bit. And really at that time, um, I think soil temperature is more important than just a frost, right? If you get a freeze, if you go below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that's a concern for sure. And I don't think that you'll get there, but you know, who knows? Midwestern weather can be kind of crazy. Um, but the last part that I'll say there is if you go late and let's just say that you have you know, some areas that are coming in pretty well and some areas that aren't, or maybe just across the board, density is not where you want it to be. You can always overseed in the spring, you know, early on, mm-hmm. come out there in February, January, even do like an, a, a, an early dormant seed or a late dormant seed, I should say, early spring seeding. Get that stuff to come up, thicken it up, and then don't worry about pre-emergent. Spray out and post anything that you get summer annual wise and live to fight another day. So it's possible. It just might, might not be the same trajectory and same milestones that you're used to hitting on a typical fall overseeding. So that's my piece. Ray, thoughts on uh, yeah. J farm situation, or if somebody was in a warm season situation like this, maybe they're in Florida and they're throwing down pallets of uh, dirt that are masked to look like sod, you know, and putting videos on of YouTube. I, I don't know. What do you think about all that? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm going to speak to uh, our friend Jay Farm and tell them that uh, the best thing you can do is not get hung up on a calendar date so much as pay attention to actual conditions and try to align your plans as best as possible with the uh, conditions. So if that means waiting a little and uh, putting your seed down when the temperatures uh, come back down from the hundreds then so be it and i kind of like likewise like the idea of if needed you can always do some further overseeding in the spring and the reason why you can is because you have good options for managing it the following spring i mean it's not like we're in the 18th century anymore and we we have ways to uh, to deal with that and and grow that in without any kind of trauma and as far as our guys in the warm season area again if up to me you work with the conditions that you have and if it means you bring in your solder your material the following late spring early summer so be it because there is no law that says you can't use green paint or even some ryegrass as the placeholder until conditions improve you know Yeah, I think the biggest thing is uh, managing expectations such that you don't have, um, like I just said at the end of my answer there too, and I think Ray is echoing the same thing, that 
you know, the typical path or trajectory or milestones, whatever you want to call it, of uh, a renovation sometimes don't line up with what the weather's giving you, with what, uh, you know, supply chain. There's all, all sorts of things. But uh, the question always comes down to with any project, any renovation, I don't care if it's somebody's lawn or a professional stadium, anything in between is in my mind is, you know, what risk mitigation strategies are you willing to put in place? Are you willing to, you know, hand water? Do you want to spray fungicide on? Are you willing to go out there and uh, spray different products or turn on irrigation so that frost doesn't set at five o'clock in the morning before dawn? You know, things like that. Those are all strategies you can do and employ, but is that too much, right? And some people are crazier than others and you just kind of have to figure out how crazy you really are. So there Mm -hmm. we have it. I don't know, Jay Pink. How did that smell? <laughs> I like the smell. Oli likes it. <laughs> Oli liked it. So yeah. thanks, Oli, for endorsing that. Yeah. And appreciate that. So mm-hmm. okay, uh, Jay Pink. It's time for everybody's favorite time of the week. It's Jono's turf. <laughs> Jono's turf. Hi, I'm Joe. I'm gonna give you a bunch of accurate turf facts today because Joe knows turf. <laughs> now, listen, uh, as I've mentioned all along since we started doing this, uh, th- this was built as a uh, crowdsourced initiative of finding things and, and whatnot. And, uh, we try not to pick on any one person too much, but when, listen, when somebody, uh, you know, uh, Ray, it reminds me of this, right? Mm. Uh, really, really good football coach once that, uh, ran the same eight plays, scored a touchdown. They go, they kick the ball, they play defense three and out, they get the ball back. They score again, running the same play six more times in a row. And the coach calls the offensive coordinator and he says, are you going to run a different play or not? And he says, hey, when they stop it, we'll run a different play. So with that, uh, Ron Henry will be joining us tonight uh, on the the, uh, program. But first, before we get to him, I do want to show this uh, Facebook post that was shared with us. And uh, Ray, I had to cringe at this. All right, for those of you on audio here, uh, this is a gentleman in some professional lawn care group. I was trying to kill grass, weeds, and everything around a fenced-in area for a daycare. I told the lady I can guarantee it all dead if I spray it with diesel fuel, and is it okay if I do? She asked me if it's kid-safe, and I said yes, once it dries. I told her anything you spray isn't safe in liquid form. So is diesel fuel full safe once sprayed and it dries? Okay. What Ray. fuck? <laughs> Sorry, right? No. What the fuck? It takes. Man. Listen, I just, I just want to, I, I want to <laughs> tell people something here. I have spent literally hundreds, maybe even over a thousand hours of my my life talking to Ray, both in a formal setting like this and an informal setting, and I can say it really takes a lot to tip him all the way to tilt to be like, man, that's fucked up. But Ray, go ahead and tell me what you think a bit of old Rosa here. Okay. This is a sensitive subject to me because water supply on Oahu is contaminated with fuel, fuel oil. And so Brosephir, 
What does he think is going to happen to the diesel fuel that he sprays on these weeds? Where does he, where the hell does he think it's going to go? I'll tell you where it's going to go. That fuel oil is going to go straight into the ground and into the groundwater. I mean, so Ryan, let me ask you this. Please. How do you like your diesel? Do you like your diesel uh, <laughs> number one winterized? Do you like yours uh, red diesel for tractors? Or uh, do you like the uh, the green diesel for on-road uh, vehicles? I mean, which one do you like? I mean, I'm a, <laughs> taste-wise. I, I'm, an, I'm an off-highway <laughs> guy myself, the red. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that reminds me of the, that, the Ace Ventura line, you know. New England mm-hmm. clam chowder. Is that the red or the white? Never remember that. Right. So anyway, right. yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think <laughs> here's the thing: is that <sighs> this is just such bad, you know, thinking. Because I do have to, you know, go back to like my old time friends in the business telling me about what they actually used to use for weed control. And one of the materials that they mentioned was this product called weed oil, Ryan. And what weed oil was, was a petroleum distillate, very similar in consistency to kerosene. And what the property of this weed oil was, is that you could spray it on vegetation and it would immediately destroy the leaf tissue on these weeds. You know, by via its via its solvent properties. But Rosafir is basically taking us back to the nineteen thirties where that's the only herbicide they really have other than arsenic. So I mean that's the here, my, here's the problem. My my, my Go ahead. yeah my Go final ahead. my final advice is why doesn't he leave the weed control to somebody that actually knows what they're doing? Because yeah, it's obvious I, I, if he's <laughs> diesel on the ground. Yeah. I don't think somebody knows what they're doing. <laughs> these are the ones that when they show up, you know, you, you have to wonder if these people are serious. If this is a meme, and then you read them a little bit more closely they follow up and again maybe they're just sticking around whatever but you look at them in the comments and things like that and eight nine times out of ten they're dead serious like they're dead serious Mm -hmm. so for Mm -hmm. those of you that you know will will reach out to us and say hey man you're just overreacting this is just somebody having fun with the group like one it's a terrible way to have fun you know uh no (laughs) number number two is uh you have to I don't know how to tell people to be professional and to, you know, have a higher level of professionalism. It seems to be something that uh, you either do or you don't have in this industry. And so Ray, I'm not here. going to, I'm not going to sit here and debate the hows and the whys of professionalism and the lawn care industry, but mm-hmm. some people just need to do fucking better. So, okay. Yeah. With that <laughs> J pink, mm-hmm. uh, let's go ahead and queue up. We've got some videos here that were sent in to us and uh, let's go ahead and fire up i think we've got what uh yeah let's fire these up 
is I will be overseeding soon. How do I ensure good seed to soil contact if I will not be top dressing? I will be dethatching and aerating. What you just said, TK. So if you can do something to thin out the turf a bit, so you know, turf raking, a light dethatching, a light scarifying, one of those, any of those, those kind of cultural practices will help thin out the turf a bit, which is going to, you know, open up that canopy. When you put the seed down, it's going to expose it to more sunlight, more, more warmth. It's going to help with germination. So what you're doing there as far as planning a light dethatching or, a, or an aeration, anything to help thin out that canopy is exactly what you want to do in preparation for an overseeding project. Okay. Uh, <laughs> totally missed totally buried the lead there about the seed to soil contact right ray mm -hmm. real quick yeah. and I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here at the end but why one he never addressed that he never talked about it at all he's talking about light and warmth and everything which you know have at the earliest stages no real role we can germinate mm -hmm. seeds in a refrigerator that's dark and cold right um so my question is, what would you do and what would you recommend to somebody that's trying to prepare a lawn and get good seed-to-soil contact? Help Ron out here. Okay, first thing I do is scalp off all old uh, foliage down to dirt even. And then I'd run a verticutter to remove debris and stolons from that soil surface. And then I would seed and roll because, Ryan, do you know what an adequate verticutting does to the actual soil or area? Do you know what it does? It cuts a lot of closely spaced grooves into the soil itself and those grooves are places where that seed may fall into there's a seed to soil contact and then at that point it's capable of germinating mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean i mean in other words you know when you're trying to establish seed to soil contact this is not the time or the place to be light or gentle you actually need to be rather deliberate about what you're doing i agree with that i think that the the smoother the surface is you know and i'm not talking about like pulverized top so i'm talking about you know an established lawn that has either been you know scalped sprayed out something to that effect right and mm -hmm. or just mm -hmm. even overseeding general overseeding uh, that right. if you do not abrade break up, do something well, like that to around, yeah. <laughs> get get some soil freed up, right? Or get seed into soil, right? So we either, mm -hmm. either need to cover it. And when we say cover it, here's the other thing I see people make the mistake of is is planting seed too deep, right? So they bury uh, it. Yeah, they bury it deep. <laughs> Kentucky bluegrass needs to be down like an eighth of an inch. It doesn't need much, you know, maybe a quarter at most. Um, rye grass could grow on concrete if you watered it enough. And tall fescue is not far behind that. So I'm not saying that you don't need seed to soil contact, but what I do believe is that, you know, we, we can't gloss over the, the fact that we need to have seed to soil contact. That's what's going to allow that seed to actually have water next to it, germinate, everything like that. So just, you know, answer the question next time. Let's see. Okay. 
let's uh, move on to the next one uh, with Ron. Uh, next up is Adam Carter. He says, so I tried to level my new Zeon Zoysia this year. I put the level mix too thick and suffocated a lot of the yard and started turning brown. Will it come back or do I need to think about resodding? Depends on how heavy you went, Adam. I mean, if you, I mean, by your own words, you said you went too thick. Uh, if here's what I would say, it's if you can get a leveling rake out there and and you know work the material and and get it off the the plant off the off the the grass to where it's not buried or it's not you know not suffocated anymore, that's going to give your zoysia the opportunity to recover. You know, it's zoysia. I mean, it's not as hardy as Bermuda, but it's also really difficult to kill. You know, what I mean, like both zoysia and Bermuda are pretty resilient grasses. So if you can if you can get the sand off the grass to where there's some leaf exposed, you can get some sunlight. It should recover. I don't think you're looking at resodding again. I haven't seen pictures of what you did or how heavy it is, but if you, you know, if it's not sitting under, you know, a couple of inches of sand, then you should be able to recover it. If you can again get the leveling rig out there, just move it around, like literally knock it off, try and try and just move it around to where you can see the grass. The grass is exposed, and then just give it give it time. The thing is, with you having zoysia, it's going to be a slow road to recovery, right? It just the nice thing about zoysia is that it grows slow. The bad thing about zoysia is that it grows slow. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't be so quick to look at doing a resod just yet. I, and again, I, I, I'm just saying this based on what my idea of of putting down too much leveling mixture, going too heavy with top dressing looks like. And you know, I want to take this as a moment to to any of you guys that are going to be doing your top dressing this fall. For any of you cool season um, guys and gals, this is a good uh, learning. This is a good teachable moment. When it comes to top dressing, more is not necessarily better. You will see people that have Bermuda grass, and then you'll see them, they'll like to say they like to do what they call sand capping. They'll sand cap the entire lawn. They'll put tons of sand down to where you literally can't see any grass at all, and just, you know, saying, you know, Bermuda will grow through it. And that is, for the most part, that is true. Bermuda is, again, to, not to beat a dead horse, is incredibly difficult to kill, and it will grow through pretty much through anything reasonable that, 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 you, that you put it through. But not all grasses are that way. And what I would say is that if you can limit the amount of sand or material that you're putting on the lawn to like a quarter of an inch to half an inch on the high end, that's going to produce really good results. Your lawn is going to be a lot smoother. Even if you still have some undulations here and there, a lot of the harsh dips um, are going to get are going to get fixed by doing that. And if you need to, you know, three, four weeks later, you can always go out there and put more sand down. But if you go too heavy all in one go, that is when you can you can uh, recovery can take a lot longer. If you get any kind of heavy rainfall, which is a big part of why I don't do it, is you'll get a lot of runoff. You know, that's another thing. If you have any kind of a slope and you put a ton of sand down, think about it. One of the things that the functions that's, that your grass does is it helps prevent soil erosion, right? It helps hold the soil in place. So if you put this, this, um, this, this layer of soil or sand on top of the grass and there's no grass really holding onto it, you get a heavy rain. There's nothing to keep it. It's just literally going to wash off and all end up at the bottom of of um of your lawn or you know wherever the lowest part of your lawn is so for, for a lot of reasons it's just not a good idea to go super heavy with your your top dressing mix so for any of you guys that are planning on doing that this fall again i'm talking the cool season folks here uh just go light there's no reason to go super heavy like a quarter of an inch to half an inch all you need i promise your lawn is gonna look really nice and if you're not happy with it you can always put more sand down you can always okay wow so right let's just start with the original question Mm-hmm. <laughs> would you top dress the anzoysia even and to what extent and how much and when let's let's start there and assuming that this person's 
probably in the southeastern United States. Okay. I mean, as far my experience with Zeon Zoisha is that you can literally sand cap Zeon Zoisha as long as you do your sand capping in late spring to summer and immediately after you sand cap, this is like a key point. You must irrigate that sand in so that it is not in fact sitting on top. Because here's what I often see with people other people's sanding jobs. They spread the sand. They may work it in with a broom or a rake. And then they put a roller on it. But what I don't see them do is get out the water hose and keep sprinkling it until all of that sand washes through to the crowns of the grass. And so, as a result, because they haven't washed that sand down, all of the sand that they spread is essentially still sitting on top. Because, Brian, the heaviest sand top dressing I've done to Zeon Zoisha was, in fact, about two inches. I did do it. And there were no ill effects from doing that at all. I think Mm -hmm. the problems that uh, this person is having is basically operator error on a certain level. It's got nothing to do with how much sand he actually applied. I I think it could be that. There's no doubt about it. I think that, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some nuance there that Mm -hmm. you know i think needs to be cautioned of people when doing videos and i think uh, i know that others have shown right that how they do it and everything like that and kind of given uh advice and on what they do and how they do it i'm thinking you know like uh people like connor for example you know connor ward Mm -hmm. does not do it the way that i would recommend doing it but he does it in a way that is just basically hey this is what i'm doing and then i'm i'm here to show Mm -hmm. it to you that's it now yep, with yep. Ron and there's a product component, uh, you know, I, I don't know if all that nuance is communicated and showing. And then when you have videos like this, JPink, throw that, that thing up real quick. That was set in. And when there's comments like that and there's a video like that, like that's going to cause some people, I think maybe right to over apply. So I don't disagree mm-hmm. with the fact that it was, maybe wasn't done, you know, who knows how it was done, but also too that, you know, just kind of, pushing that narrative that hey more sand more sand more top dressing so and we'll see that more here in a minute so jpink let's roll that next video he says ron been been around since your your first live stream i guess it's been about four years it's uh, three years going on year four so we're at three years now and counting i've learned a lot and and i learned a ton but have a question why is there a limit on prodiamine and what happens if you go over it thanks so there's a limit on prodiamine because there's a limit on, like, th- there's, how, how's the best way to answer this question? Why is there a limit on prodiamine? There's a limit on prodiamine um, because too much of the active ingredient can be harmful, can be harmful to the grass, can be harmful to, to, to the plant. Much like, you know, you take anything that's, that's helpful for you or me, right? Like, take, like, vitamin C. We need so much vitamin C, and we can, and up to a certain amount, it's helpful. Over, if you go, you go too, too heavy, it can become toxic. 
like water. Like, you know, I'm drinking water and lemonade right now. Like, you need a certain amount of water every day. If you drink too much water, if you drink excessive, excessive amounts of water, it can actually be bad for you. It can be, it can be poison. It can be, it can be toxic. So, um, if you exceed the annual limits, um, what you will, for diamond anyway, or with pre-emergent, you can start getting what's called root clubbing, um, which means that um, you can, as far as whenever stolens are running and they're trying to tack down, it becomes harder for them to do that. So if you ever see like, uh, I mean, it's hard to say this, but if you ever see like a lawn with Bermuda grass and the runners, you have like what I call like floppy runners, where they will run out and they just kind of just, cut, they're sitting on the top of the grass, so they won't tack down. Um, that's not necessarily that a sign that you, the person over applied pre-emergent, but that is something you can see if you go uh, excessive with your with your application rate for, for, for prodiamine. Um, the reason why they they have annual limits on all these products, I mean, even even Primo, pretty much every product, every herbicide, any product you put down, there is an annual limit um, for um, for plant health because again, too much can be toxic. For environmental reasons, uh, are the reasons why they also will have limits as far as how much of this stuff they want in the soil. They don't want it building up, and then to help minimizing, uh, to help minimize runoff and that type of thing. So there's a lot of reasons, mostly having to do with the 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 health of the plant and um, also uh, environmental concerns, why you need to stay within uh, within annual limits. And the thing is, what you'll find, Kevin, is if you go over it, you're not gonna get a better result. I mean, if you think about it, let's, let's, just, let's do this thought experiment. Like whoever makes, let's take like Barricade, right? Which is Prodiamine by Syngenta. Like Syngenta's in business to sell products, right? Like they make, they, they'll engineer the products, they'll make them and they, they package them up and they sell them. So it's in their best interest to sell a whole lot of products, right? So, so if they tell you that, hey, with someone who is motivated to sell a product, but still they say, um, with our product, with our blend of this, you will only want to use this application rate, do not exceed this amount per year. You really want to heed that because they have a vested interest in you buying a, a, and as much of it as possible, but yet they're still putting limits in there based on you know EPA guidelines and also their testing as far as what's effective and what then becomes point of diminishing returns, then moving over into damage. So it's it's just in your best interest to, to heed that. Like you're not gonna. I'm trying to think of any of any situation where consciously and regularly exceeding the the recommended application rate limits really leads leads to a good result. I, I can't think of any. You know, when it comes to fertilizer, there's people that'll say, oh, you know, I want to really push growth and I'll, I want to get out there and put down, you know, put down two pounds of nitrogen. And what tends to happen is, yeah, you push you a lot of growth, but then you also create thatch problems in your lawn. You can create the, you increase the likelihood that you're going to have disease problems. You know what I mean? If you go use Primo, you know, uh, if you use the, the, the amount on the label, the recommended amounts on the label, you're going to get great control, great regulation. The, the, the lawn is, gonna, is going to have a nice green color with less mowing. But if you go too much, you're going to discolor the lawn. It's, it's going to, you get negative effects, right? And that is true okay. for, for. Okay. Wow. wow. I thought he was, I first thought he was saying you could do two pounds and then you could just apply pre-mill and it'll all balance itself out. It all go okay. away. Yeah, no, he yeah, didn't. He yeah. didn't. Let's get <laughs> back and answer it. the real. Let's answer the real question here, Ray, because mm -hmm. you know sometimes we'll we'll have people that do split apps. They'll do different things. Why are there annual limits, right? And I don't think that uh, Ron was very well versed in the uh, negative effects, right, of not necessarily over application, but coming up and towing to the line, or perhaps going over it. So in higher rate situations, what are some of the negative effects? And then also, again, why do we have label limits on pre-emergence, specifically dinitrianolines like prodiamine or dithiopyr or penamethylene? Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
he actually kind of got it almost right in that various grasses will show a root printing effect. However, the overriding concern as to why there's limits on dinitroaniline herbicides is specifically due to the issues of environmental persistence and off-target effects and the product or chemical being in places where it should not be. Because here's some inside baseball, Ryan. Did you know that a lot of herbicides, specifically or especially, are literally tested at up to two to four times their proposed label rates? And, oh, yeah. 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 And so someone could conceivably apply more. However, they may not cause ill effects to the grass. However, what the issue becomes is the EPA has decided how much of a given active ingredient they even want out in the environment. They've made that and decision. With, and with good reason, yeah, too. And, I mean, and uh, with good reason, that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, again, it's not just one group that's overusing this stuff it's not just one thing so i uh, i'm glad that you at least addressed the addressed the question talked a little bit about you know reprinting effects and it's not just on runners and you know the ability for uh stoloniferous grasses to tack down necessarily right mm. like there is also effects on you know parent plants essentially of what's you know sending out daughter plants for uh for stolons and things like that right so for any of the propagation that we see those net effects also can have the parent plant and we can see clubbing of roots and we can see um, negative effects on rooting. So, you know, again, there's label limits for a reason because they're set by the government and they're set by, uh, you know, manufacturers that are making those recommendations based on um, the safety, not only of the product, but also safety in the environment of people being dipshits, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's move on to the next one here real quick. Do I need to apply a fungicide or insecticide for my uh, uh, turf top tall fescue lawn? Looks great, but not sure what's needed. So the fungicide, I would say no. I mean, you, unless, unless you have something going on in the lawn, I wouldn't say fungicide. Um, there are people that like to do two applications of insecticide throughout the year. So when the insecticide that I use on my lawn, uh, Jonathan, is a product called a Celeprin. I apply this typically once per year, which is in late March, early April timeframe, but I'm the minority in that. Most people that use this will apply it um, around the time when I do it, again, like uh, April timeframe, and they'll also apply it again in July, late July, early August timeframe for armyworm control. So if you what? want, if there were anything you were going to do, I would say a celeprin. I would say a celeprin out of those two is what I would say to go with. The um, unless you've got a disease problem on your lawn, I wouldn't go out and put a fungicide down. You know, I mean, there's just no reason to put that. I mean, one, it's expensive, and then second, if you don't need it, why use it, right? There's that. And if you're looking to where you can get a, get a celeprin, we've got a, a couple different options for it. If you go to awesome uh, shop, okay, damn, already, <laughs> that, already, that right? That didn't that didn't take long. Um, <laughs> wait, there's more. So, uh, 
this this is a question here where I think context matters and choosing where to get your information and what information is offered and what the end result of that information is, right? In which case here, clearly to sell a product uh, and probably oversell it too. So first let's talk about turf type Telfesky, right? Any number of locations that that gentleman could have been located in Northeastern United States, Midwest, uh, transition zone, mid South Carolina, something like that. That would have very much determined whether I think Ray, Matt or myself would have recommend that he preventatively apply a fungicide or things to watch out for and fungicides to have on hand, you know? Uh, so I, I think that was a little bit off putting on that sense, but Ray, mm-hmm. the thing that threw me for a absolute loop on this clip is the fact that, uh, Ron is in the minority of only making one application of a celeprin, uh, to control surface feeding insects, grubs, and then, army worms on the back end of his season um wow i think in the highest of high-end situations you might maybe and i'm gonna you know just Mm -hmm. i'm gonna guess that there may Mm -hmm. be 10 percent of acelaprin users that are purposely making two applications a year uh Mm -hmm. in, in very in a very specific climate visit very specific part of the country i think across the board again in areas where tall turf type tall fescue is a predominant turf or, or one that would be asked about i would have no reservations whatsoever about saying that you need to make that application once a year uh and to say that it needs to be done twice a year is just crazy and the reason i say that is is that if you are worried if you are in an area where you're growing turf type fall fescue and there is the threat of armyworms my recommendation would be this is to go a little bit later than that march april time you can you can go all the way up until May, Mother's Day, maybe something like that. You mm-hmm. go with the high rate, right? So the high rate on the celeprin is going to be you're using the liquid product, 16 fluid ounces to the acre, right? Um, I don't know offhand what uh, a celeprin G is. If you're going to buy one of the uh, fertilizers with the celeprin impregnated on it, that's going to be uh, 300 pounds per acre on whatever product you're throwing. It's going to be a 0.067% celeprin load on that, right? So that's the highest rate that right. you can go. And you're going to catch army worms just fine at that high rate. So just this one was just real salesy and not, again, losing all the nuance and missing all that. And then, you know, I don't know. I had a really uh, well, grotesque analogy. I wasn't going to go. I, I'm not going to go there. Yo, that, you know, Ryan, I was just, I was just cringing at the thought of, Telling somebody to apply a celeprin twice, knowing the systemic and soil residual product, products of the chlorantranilipril. I mean, I was just thinking, now, why would I need to put down something twice in one year when its soil half-life is literally, you know, over 300 days? I mean... Why would you More need than that? To... Nine, 972 days is the half life of chlorinotrinilopril in soil. 972. 972. Well, that, that's why Hawaii Department of Health has such a hard on for chlorinotrinilopril. I mean, that's why. Now I I'm mean... picturing some guy in Honolulu looking at the label mm-hmm. and just, just got his shorts tight. That just, yeah. No, actually, uh, the, the chlorinotrinilopril banner is actually a woman. 
And I knit her. Oh. Okay. Is her and name I Sheila too? And... No. Unfortunately, if it was Sheila, I'd have some wiggle room. <laughs> but uh, maybe a lot more than case, some others. Yeah, but in any case, a soloprin twice a year, Ryan. I cannot think of an instance where something like that would be even indicated. Because, tell me honestly, Ryan. You know, in all of your years applying a soloprin. Have you ever had to make a late season rescue application of a celebrin to a lawn or turf area that has been treated with an adequate rate of a celebrin earlier in spring? Have you ever had to do it? Uh, no. And actually, uh, while I'm thinking about this, I will fish out a picture uh, mm-hmm. that's really interesting and actually is tall fescue. If you'll bear with me a moment. Okay. Now, let me ask you, while I'm doing that, Ray, let me ask you a mm-hmm. question. Is, um, is, there, is there a strategy for armyworms specifically? Like, if you know that you have surface feeders, all the things that the celebrant hits, is there any other mm-hmm. better treatment strategy in your mind if you're worried about all those things and armyworms? If you were in a state that didn't have any, um, any, any restrictions on diamide insecticides, where would you be on this whole issue? as far as insect control and season long and trying to get the best value for each app? Well, what I would probably do is I'd probably time my acelloprin application a little bit later in the year, of course, and I'd always tend to go towards the higher allowed label rates because, to me, saving money on my spring grub control turns into false economy because if you have to do a rescue application later in the year because you cheaped out on your on your spring insect control, that's like false economy because do you know what my standard rescue application is for something like fall armyworm? Tell me. It's Dilox plus either Arena or Imidacloprid. Oh, wait. Applied, okay. uh, applied at very high volume. I'm not talking about a uh, third of a gallon per thousand square foot through the permagreen. I'm talking about uh, five to ten gallon per thousand through the trident. There's throwing the hammer down, ladies and gentlemen, and there's throwing the whole <laughs> goddamn wrecking ball down. All right, uh, J-Pink, throw this photo up here real quick, and let's take a look at this. Ray, I want to show you. This is uh, the great army worm outbreak of 2021, and mm-hmm. what you're looking at here is uh, the hillside. Let's pan over and up. Man, look at that. Okay, so the uh, foreground, story is here? Tre- foreground is treated with celeprin, uh probably like, late i don't have the exact date but late april very early may so last week of april first week of may sometime like that at mm-hmm. the lower rate eight mm-hmm. fluid ounces right so that's the low rate mm-hmm. and low end, uh, yes. the hillside untreated and you can get see in, what happened any. with armies so again did i make a second wow. application in midsummer to pick up those army worms and smash into bits no i didn't it's one app you didn't have to yeah you, not needed chemistry so Chemistry. I mean, chemistry is a, a lovely thing because uh, 
you know, the only thing I can think of with this level of longevity would be all of the pre-1970 insecticides. <laughs> okay? That That's the only something. thing I can think of. No, this is the only thing I, I can think of that would be able to keep out armyworm from that long ago. And I'm thinking specifically all of the, uh, what's they call, chlorinated cyclodine insecticides. Mm. The real Chlorodine, dieldrin, yeah, mm -hmm. aldrin, you know, heptachlor, that kind of stuff. <laughs> All right, we are going to move on to uh, the second part or third part, third part of this uh, episode in which we have just our patrons and our members here that are recording live with us. And again, we record live every Sunday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and our patrons and members are invited to join us, ask questions. They get to name the show after it's done. So all those kooky and fun loving names that you see, some a little bit more risque than others, are all generated <laughs> by our members and patrons. Uh, so after the show we get together on our private discord server we get to kind of pick through names vote on who has the best ones and usually there's anywhere from oh i don't know ray 30 to 90 submissions during uh during the yeah. recording period so mm -hmm. it's uh it's usually a pretty competitive event people take it very seriously mm -hmm. which is good mm -hmm. uh and if you want to be a part of that and also a part of our thirsty thursday and our uh our meetups that we're doing uh here coming up uh Gosh, Ray, what is it? It's, uh, about seven or eight weeks, something like that, in uh, beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. We are currently sold out now. We are taking waitlist uh, participants, though. So if you want to get in on that and more, www.patreon.com forward slash burn of return for the low, low price of uh, $4, $10, even $20, you can join up with us, hang out, and uh, enjoy turf with other like minded uh, snobs crazies i don't know what the correct word is but uh, oh wait spencer what what are we again you are a fucking pussy yes sir we are <laughs> all right let's dive into that uh these questions here i'm gonna slide back over here and uh we're starting off here with david clausen so we're taking questions uh our members are tend to be a little bit more on the the higher end side of uh knowledge and expectations and things like that and not to diss our normal participants on Thursday, Thursday or any of our other shows that we do. But uh, we're taking a little bit more advanced questions here tonight. Some ones that with a little more nuance. So let's see what we got. David Clausen writes in any tips on how to maximize Kentucky bluegrass germination and coverage during the fall renovation in Long Island, New York. Burned off 12,000 mm -hmm. square feet of GTTF with Soul Stealer layered a six mil tarp, lifting the tarp in two weeks, then leveling, compacting. Tenacity, Quinclorac, Furt, Seed, Ryan Normix, Lathe, F4, Futura, Netless Blanket. Blanket, or Blanket, then Water. Anything missing? David, that has got to be one of the most complete, um, uh, just thorough preparations and uh, just follow-throughs, hopefully, uh, as far as a, mm -hmm. uh, a renovation of a cool season lawn. I mean, I don't know that there's any more that you can do uh, other than execute properly each one of those steps i think that f4 netless blanket will be uh, clutch i just think you need, also need to think about too the grass will grow up through that and you're going to have to mow through some of that because the grass has a tendency to push that stuff up a little bit it's no matter your mower will chop it up it, it'll be fine you just need to go ahead and collect it um when it does that but just be prepared that that will probably happen and try to set your mower up as high as it can go and work your way down uh, as you do as you start your growing and your maintenance so uh, Ray, anything to add on David's outstandingly thorough prep? 
No, I mean, you know, guys, this is an example of prep for renovation as it should be. Because uh, this, the backstory of this is what does recurrent uh, weeds and poa mean to you, Ryan? Nothing good. And I think that nothing that's good. The thing is that- yeah, that's why you need yeah. to take it all the way. So, Ray, mm-hmm. just talk a little bit about like from the prep and planning standpoint, you know, some of the things that you have to go back in and fix, I would suspect more often than not are the result of poor planning and more specifically poor execution during the renovation period and how mm-hmm. critically important. I know we stress it. We, we nerd out about it, everything like that, but just how critically important that is so that you don't find yourself in a failure? Well, I mean, my number one failure point or point of failure would be failure to kill off undesirable vegetation. So, you know, David here, he elected to apply soul stealer, not just glyphosate by itself. And his reason for that decision was based on the fact that he has got more than just unwanted turf-type pelt fescue to get rid of. There's contamination by poa, for example, and maybe even poa trivialis, uh, maybe even quackgrass underneath there. All number of things that would uh, cause the renovation to be less than successful. So... I think failure to get rid of what you don't want in the first place is a big point of failure. And next point of failure is not ensuring that your seed or whatever you elect to plant is in a position to germinate and grow in uniformly. And to that end, I know David is elected to use the uh, seed blanket. You know, good move. Because other backstory to this is that David is going to be renovating over a half an acre. <laughs> Not I was say, a little bit. You know. <laughs> right. And this is your one chance to get it right. So, that, and, and people will so often eschew all those, you know, little things that end up being a big thing. Uh, in the long run and kick mm-hmm. themselves after as to why how oh, this didn't work or did you know especially at that scale like but you gotta take mm-hmm. the best shot because it's not like you're gonna well, be like well I, didn't work out we'll do it again mm-hmm. yeah and, and you see the reason why i know i harp on it is i always remember that a few a couple thousand square feet of turf area to me market value in my region is literally $10,000 or more. It's not small money on the line, right? Mm -hmm. And likewise, if somebody is dealing with a big area, like a quarter acre or more, Mm -hmm. the, what I always tell people is any kind of problems, issues, fuck ups or inadequacies are multiplied so you can have a small mistake and a small problem or else you can have a big mistake and a big problem 
Mm-hmm. So this is all the, you know, why I totally appreciate the thoroughness and care that David is putting into this. I appreciate it a lot. Very much so. <laughs> I'm excited about it. All right, Brent, Western Master, uh, question for cool season. Turf type tall fescue should be sowed in August, KBG in late August, early September, PRG in September for Western Mass, considering the weather. So I think that's a question. Are, are, are those all good? Um, I have no problem with uh, tall fescue going into September. Uh, bluegrass, I'd rather see start, a little, you know, about that time, late August, no more, no later than early September. Uh, and ryegrass, Anytime that your soil temperatures are above 50 and you've got about 14 days to get it up, like you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My recommendation there, Brent. So, you know, watch those soil temperatures uh, and that's 50 degrees at a two inch depth. That's sort of the critical uh, number for all these seeds, but particularly ryegrass, it's going to be the one that germinates at the lowest temperature and grows and, and continues to establish at that lower temperature threshold. So just think about that and keep it in mind. All right. Woodchopper. Using self-interest for cool season grass, yellow nut sets prevention, would that be put down at the same time as other pre-emergence like prodiamine as the ground temp nears 55? Ray, what do you think? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, funny you should mention uh, Brent because both Brent and Lushy, for example, they plan on applying self-interest zone as split applications at the same time that their pre-emergence are going down specifically to manage sedge infestation. So, Mm. you know, they are hammering down on sulfentrazone in the spring, same time that they're applying prodiamine. And from what they've told me, that has been the game changer for them. Because... They do their sulfentrazone applications in the spring. Uh, For the customers that have received that application, they are no longer chasing around nutsedge emergence during summer. I mean, their summer is relatively uh, less stressful, although I don't know how it is this year because uh, they have a, a, a different problem where it won't stop raining in the Northeast, and uh, <laughs> they literally have lawns underwater. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Fentrazone won't help you there. I mean, no, I was going to say, no I help mean, that, there. Sorry. <laughs> I, I just hope for them that they have a normal fall up there, that one that they can either mm-hmm. get some timely rains or control water or whatever, because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been a tough summer up there. Uh, turf losses for biotic, <clears throat> excuse me, and abiotic reasons. And, uh, through no fault of any applicator or anything up there. It's been an incredibly tough summer up there for a variety of reasons. So uh, Chuck Benzing is offering some help here to Dave and wanted to get some feedback from us. Uh, do you think Echelon, which is uh, prodiamine and sulfentrazone, do you think that would help David come next spring? Um, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world, uh, but I no. also think too that, uh, you know, see where that Kentucky bluegrass is at. Uh, I'm, I'm, a strong proponent of no pre-emergent that following spring um, and spraying at any post, because mostly what you're going to face is going to be uh, summer annual, you know, weedy grasses, things like that. Not so much POA. Uh, I would 
I would try to get back on the prodiamine or uh, dithiopyr train in the fall of next year. So the fall of 24 uh, to get that right. So mm-hmm. that all being said, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, Ray, where, I, how do you feel? I know you've, I know you've never done a fall reno and <laughs> had to control, you know, uh, grassy weeds and put down a pre-emergent in the spring, but just, you know, from your, your knowledge well, and, here's uh, here's what, here's what I've, here's what I've heard it, from, okay. From, you know, both Lushy and Bryn. And what they've mm-hmm. told me is avoid that kind of intense pre-emergent on fall seedings. They, they tell me that if you decide to apply that level of pre-emergent control on a fall seeding, mm-hmm. expect to be... Uh, you know, personals next to the deli slicer scared that spring because this pre-emergent is literally too much for grass that is that young. Mm. So I would suggest holding a sulfentrazone and prodiamine tank mix till the following spring and just deal with any weeds that come up in the following spring and summer post-emergently. And by the way, I think we have very good options for doing that these days because what is tolerated by recently seeded grasses includes quinclorac and mesotrione. And you know when you apply those products as a broadcast application, Mm -hmm. they become a pre-emergent. So okay. it's not like you are totally without any kind of pre-emergent protection. It's just that I would have to advise holding your traditional prodiamine sulfendrazone until the following year to ensure safety to the desired turf grass. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I All right. <laughs> oh, this is an email. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's another one here. So Chris says, appreciate all you guys do. Best damn show on the interwebs. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, Bulgaria thinks highly mm-hmm. of us too. Number six over there right now on, on YouTube. So we love you, Bulgaria. Been following Matt since he was doing the whiteboard videos and working out of his truck. Thoroughly enjoy Ray. He's a sharp dude. Superior, su- superior knowledge there. That's not all, Chris. Let me tell you what. Uh, Ryan is awesome. Does a great job. Keeps it 100. All right. So he says, I'm 48 years of age, been in the auto collision industry since 1992, opened up my own shop in 2006, still in business and things are going well there despite all the craps and parts delays since 2020. Family run business with a wife and two sons. I'm at a point now where I'm able to free up some time during the day and I'm looking at a local commercial account for a lawn renovation. This is where I could use some help. I have pretty much all the equipment to do the job. I'm looking forward to the challenge, but uncertain of the billing side for this project. Thank you. Hashtag don't want to be on Joe knows turf. LOL. <laughs> well, yikes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you, you set the bar low so that you can, you know, carefully and, and uh, very intentionally raise your level of expectations. Um, you know, I know that there's a number of folks that have branched out and people within our community. I think of Brandon at turf culture. I think of, um, I mean, hell, Cam, you could, you could take Cam Elevated Landscapes. He just did a show tonight. And, mm. uh, you know, so there's people that have sort of branched out on their own to do some things um, on the side, if you will. 
And I, mm-hmm. I think the things to to think about is one, if you have the equipment, that's great. You know, not having to rent anything is is a huge piece of it. Uh, just like we talked about with J Farm, with all these other folks, is you know, risk mitigation. Everything that you can do to mitigate that risk, control quality, um, and make sure that things are followed up on. Because you know, there's a certain part of a renovation where you do all the work, you get up to a certain point, and now really at the critical point, you know, you finish the renovation and get the seed in the ground. You know, that's not the finish line; that's the starting line. Uh, in in my book that's the beginning so, yeah yeah so in that sense right you have to get uh make sure that after that point that expectations are very clear as to what should happen what happens if those things don't happen right how are you going to fix them is that included in the cost is that extra money uh how is that going to get worked out and i think there you have to be crystal fucking clear on what needs to happen how it's going to go down uh and what you do if that doesn't happen. Uh, I think how you get paid, I know like uh, Lushy, for example, the minute he rolls off your property, he's set the expectation that you're going to water it, you're going to take care of it, I'll come back and do some fertilizer applications, do what I got to do, I'll monitor it, right? But it's up to them to water, and he sends them a bill immediately, right? So I think that's probably the safest way. I don't think that they should pay for results unless you're going to charge a price in which you're going to be back there often checking on things, adjusting things, like really, really kind of managing the grow in. I think there you can do it a couple of different ways. If this is only one renovation that you're doing, you know, you might try that and try to learn a little bit from it and charge them maybe just a little bit more for your time and going out there and managing it. And that might help you later on down the road, kind of streamline your process and not have to be there so much, right? And give people some better recommendations because, you know, when you do it at your house and you gain confidence and everything like that, it's easy to, you know, kind of, I don't want to say become complacent, but you don't see the other challenges that might happen on other sites or foresee those things, right? So being up close and personal with it, going through that process, going through that journey could definitely help. And if you don't, and if you're comfortable enough, you can offer them and just say, hey, there's one price and I'm going to be here and I'm going to manage you through it. You're going to pay me half or two thirds up front, you know, after I get the job done. And then the other third upon, you know, you accepting it, something like that, right? Uh, and if you're really comfortable with it, you think you got it all worked out and you know, what's going to happen, just say, Hey, here's another price of me. Just do it and walk away. You know, uh, I'm not sure that I would offer that just yet. I think maybe in the future, if you do more of these, that that's a pricing strategy that you can employ at least as, as you stay small and you are able to kind of bounce around and look at different lawns and things like that and offer a higher level of service. And maybe that's just the way you do it. Maybe that's, you know, you enjoy being a part of that process, not just the prep and the seeding and the install process, but you enjoy the growing process that much more. That's a differentiator, right? A lot of people, a lot of companies won't do that. And so if you target the right clients, you might be able to command higher, you know, higher fees, higher pricing and be able to go with it that way. But, you know, from a simple prep standpoint and pricing that, uh, I think you need to figure out what your you know direct costs are, right? For the equipment, how much it's going to take to operate, how many hours, things like that. It's going to take you to do it, you know. So you've got your labor figured out, you've got your equipment costs figured out. If you need to build this much per hour of use on this piece of equipment, so on and so forth. Figure out your fuel uh, depreciation on the equipment, uh, repair and maintenance costs, things like that, and come up with a per hour price so that you can do it that way. And then finally is your overhead cost, right? Which at this point, if it's just your first one, your overhead cost should be very, very, very minimal, right? So um, insurance, taxes, you know, uh, marketing, whatever, right? All that stuff gets dumped into that bucket. And then last, you know, there's obviously a profit involved. I think the profit uh, on this should be indicative or uh, 
closely match what the risk is, right? So if you are going to put more time into it and ensure some type of result that comes along with it, then the profit, you know, and the risk associated with that should be higher, right? If you're simply going to do the work and kind of turn them loose and get to that starting line and then fire off the starting pistol and let them run, then that's a whole different pricing strategy from a risk standpoint, right? On your profit. So uh, that's my long-winded answer. Ray, what do you got? I think you uh, largely covered it, Ryan. And uh, that is where I suggest that somebody pick a lane, pick where they want to be, and go with it. However, here's where I have a little bit of a concern. Okay. He already has a business running. Mm-hmm. Okay. And here's what my concern is. I've come to realize that turf management, lawn care, landscaping, renovations, etc., they really need to be someone's almost full-time job. Because, yeah, because divided attention is not being there when you need to be there and then things go sideways. And I think that's the thing is like anticipating what those things might be, those things that are outside your control. And mm -hmm. even if there is a guaranteed result, making sure that those expectations are communicated extremely clearly in writing verbally with context up front because mm-hmm. if those things do happen and they're outside your control even under your management what are you to do right, right? does that mean you eat right, shit right. and you fix it all or what so yep. um i think that's that's a really important point for sure totally Uh-oh. all right last question that we're going to take here from chuck chuck wants to know an ornamental question i'm way out of my league chuck so i'm gonna to have to pass this one off for ray i deal with monocots mm-hmm. only uh, let's see here. Magnolia scale has reappeared after being absent for 10 years or so. I blame the irrigation, but is an IGR or other remedy something I should look into? Ray, completely you. I have no clue on this. Okay. You know, normally on scale insects on shrubs and, uh, you know, ornamentals, I tend to lean very heavily into one, a systemic insecticide right now to prevent it for the next year and two if i want to make some kind of a application i'm a big fan of a winter horticultural oil application or reactively even a spring horticultural application in conjunction with that systemic uh, insecticide application mm-hmm. An IGR is normally used under circumstances where you have extremely high pest pressure and you have very low tolerance for, you know, pest damage or pest breakthrough. I mean, but then to keep it simple, Chuck, this is where a soil application of imidacloprid is simple safe and effective 
I mean, that's that's kind of my go-to, actually. And by the way, if you apply imidacloprid in the fall, that application will literally carry over into next year. That's how long it lasts in shrubs and trees. There you go. So that's yeah, that, that that's All that's a simple me. way to do it. And for goodness sake, please do not spray the imidacloprid on the foliage or upper plant parts. Yes. Don't do it. Please don't. In fact, Ryan, you know mm-hmm. what I think would have saved the reputation of the new nicotinoids? More diesel fuel. Yeah. Or <laughs> If the labeling were written, prohibiting foliar applications, period. Yeah, I think that's the troubling part about some of this stuff is that, um, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, uh, I, I think about, uh, you know, off-target effects, and certainly, you know, they're they're different on neonics than, you know, perceived to be different on neonics than what we see with other things, but I think of a product like Imprellus, right? That was rushed seemingly to market, right? And yes, had it been yes. labeled correctly, would still be a viable park, a product in the turf market and do an incredibly good job, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And not an insecticide, but the same premise here of laboring requirements and learning what we need to know and putting it on there and teaching people that. I think that's something that, um, you know, there's there needs to be a little bit more uh, thought behind that number one, and and a little bit more effort, I think, too, of teaching people the correct way to do some of these things. And uh, I guess that's what we're here for, Ray. Do our little part, yeah. our little tiny part. Yeah, yeah. We try to we try to do our best, and uh, I think what makes it a little easier is that uh, I, I'm a poor uh, lawn and irrigation professional with no affiliate link. Okay, <laughs> nothing I suggest that people do has an affiliate link associated with it. You are a None. fucking pussy. That's right. <laughs> Dumps, I that's... am. I am. I will own that one. <laughs> hey, I don't. I don't hate you for it. Fine by me. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Um, yeah, I think that's it. That's all the questions that we have. So yeah, mm-hmm. all right. So we're going to wrap it here. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank everybody for joining us. A little bit different on our Burn and Return episode here tonight. We'll get back into articles here and everything soon. It has been a absolutely uh, meat grinder of a fucking summer. By meat and grinder, I mean like absolutely putting your dick in the hamburger grinder. And you now it's oh. it's been tough. It's been tough. Uh, yeah. But we're getting there. And fall is around the corner here. It's Labor Day weekend next week. Right? I can't believe that. For those of us in cool season country, it's time to take a little deep breath, get some renovation work done, uh, and look forward to what will be hopefully putting our mowers away and uh, taking a little bit of a, a deeper breather. I can't wait for that. But uh, there's still much work to be done, and you got to stay vigilant. And you can't listen to you know some of the BS you see on, on YouTube. So uh, keep that in mind. Keep yourself safe, and we'll see you all on the next one. (laughs) Holy, how's that smell again? I like the smell. Me too.